Hey everybody, this is Nick Padiak. You're listening to I'll Be Damned. Uh, today my guest is Bill Savage. He's a local guy uh, here in Rogers Park on the north, north side of Chicago, far north side of Chicago. I found him via Twitter. I moved to Rogers Park and about a year ago and just decided to go on Twitter and search for Rogers Park, and he came up as at Rogers Park Man. Uh, found him there, and he, he's a fascinating guy. He's a good follow on Twitter if you want to go and do that. Uh, but he's also just an interesting dude to, to sit and spend some time with. Uh, this episode is, is very Chicago-centric and very Rogers Park-centric, uh, as is Bill. He is He's a professor of English at Northwestern. Uh, he's a man of, of many ideas and many talents and many interests, and, and we, had, we had a really, really great talk here, here at my house. Um, a couple of housekeeping things before we launch into the interview. Uh, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done it already and rate it on iTunes. Uh, tell your friends about it. Tell your parents about it. Tell your kids about it. I don't know. Tell everybody you know about it. Uh, and check out the back episodes uh, if you haven't already done that. You can you can get those wherever you get your podcast, wherever you got this podcast. Uh, if you want to get in touch with me, you can check out my website, nicholaspadiak.com, or you can check me out on Twitter. I'm at npadiak. Uh, and, and a real quick plug for my other podcast, Informer. Uh, that's a show during which and for which my uh, lawyer friend Kevin and I uh, sit and talk and, and, and give information without conclusion is what we call it. We, we talk about the laws that are in the news and that are affecting our politics and our lives. And he's a lawyer. I'm a journalist. So he speaks his lawyer gobbledygook. And I try to get him to to talk about it in a way that everybody can understand and it's not as boring as it sounds it's it, it ends up being fairly vulgar and 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 very funny I, I think so uh check that out you can get that wherever you got this podcast and you can also check out the website for that uh that is www.informerpod.com not sure why i tossed in the www like a grandma just then um Thanks, as always, to Matt Pickett for the I'll Be Damned theme song and to Alex Johnson for the cover art. And here it is. Enjoy my talk with Bill Savage. So it's the end of a long day at work for you. You work at Northwestern. Yeah, I'm a uh, faculty member in the English department as well as an advisor in the uh, College of Arts and Sciences dean's office. Gotcha. So I've got kind of a hybrid administrator slash faculty gig. Um, not tenure track, so I don't have to worry about publishing some big research book that'll yeah. guarantee me a job for life, but a pretty stable, solid position where I get to do a lot of writing and research that's just uh, generated by my teaching right rather on. than by some bigger thing. So Now, now not- what's the uh, what's the track like what what what's your specialty what's your experience um i got my phd at northwestern in 1986 my dissertation was about nelson algren um but it was really a dissertation on interpretive theory how people read narratives and how aspects of material culture tell you what kind of book you're reading and how good it is um it's it's a sort of a a problem in hermeneutics uh, philosophical question um you never know you, you can never know what something means until you've read it all Hmm. So each part only means something in relation to the whole, but you can't know the whole without knowing what each part means. So it's like a how do you know what what kind of book you're reading? Uh, d- doesn't determine, but it seriously influences how you interpret anything. So Nelson Algren got uh, mischaracterized as a writer of kind of urban exposés or junkie fiction or juvenile delinquent fiction, 
And his books were packaged and sold in a way that would lead readers to expect a certain kind of pop culture, you know, thrill of the dirty and lowdown, which is not what he was as a writer at all. Hmm. So it, it, it sort of it's about how you judge books by their covers, yeah. essentially. Um, material culture really influences literary culture. And scholars tend to talk about the text as though it existed outside of the material world. No one reads a text. You read a book. Sure. Even nowadays with ebooks, you you know, there's still covers, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the covers will tell you genre and canon information. So I did that, and then that's evolved into a more general kind of urbanist American studies approach where I do research on hot dog stands, on saloons, <laughs> on Chicago culture in a, in a broader way. Gotcha. Now, uh, there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, First of all, I'm curious how do you how do you teach that? I mean that that seems like a fairly there's a lot going on there. How do, how does one well, teach that? Well, one of the one of the secrets of higher education is your PhD is not what you spend most of your time teaching. Mm. Um, when I teach my American novel class, which is more generally about canon processes and you know the idea of the great American novel, the one book you've got to read mm-hmm. to really get America. In that book, in that class, I can build in a day where I lecture on this yeah. and I show slides of like tawdry paperbacks from the 50s with lurid lurid titles like you know uh the whipping and Mm. it's got then you then you call up a faulkner cover that looks very similar yeah or one the 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 transition that i use is a a totally forgotten and probably rightfully so exploitative detective novel with the title 12 chinks and a woman oh my yeah and it shows you know two Asian guys grabbing this white girl and there's a, you know, white guy knocked out on the ground. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, and my students are always like, Oh, yeah, yeah. you can't say that. I'm like, <laughs> well, how about 28 men and a girl? And I flash on that cover and it's all these menacing Russians coming at a peasant girl. Mm. And it's a collection of Maxime Gorky stories. Hmm. So you can, you can put anything you want into that kind of tawdry package and it'll influence how readers approach it. Gotcha. Gotcha. So I'm curious. You teach a great American no- or an American novel class. Right. So uh, what's the great American novel? Uh, well, the, the idea of the great American novel is that there's some one book that if you it simultaneously it's, it's it's a contradiction. It's a paradox. It simultaneously describes what American identity is, which is always a matter of debate, and it uh, creates that identity by describing it. So mm-hmm. it's like a chicken or the egg situation. Um, I was on a panel at the Humanities Festival several years ago where. Uh, on this topic where one of the other panelists pointed out that there's only four problems with the idea of the great American novel. It's each word, <laughs> right? <laughs> Why only one? Yeah. Um, great by what standards? Mm. American begs the question, right? What is that? If that's the question, you can't just call it that. I'm so and glad it, you used begs the question yeah, correctly. Thank you. That's one of, that's, Lord, that pisses me yeah, off. It's one of my bet noirs as well, yeah. um, or pet peeves. And of course, if you, your bet noir is a black cat and it's also your pet peeve, you can work that together. Uh-huh. And then novel. Why not... TV show, why not movie, why not mm. poem, why, why not, not play? Why not The Wire? Right, exactly. The Wire, The Sopranos. Yeah. I mean, you can, uh, and you know, I'd love to teach some of that stuff too, but you can't teach a, an 80-hour TV series is really yeah. basically untouchable. Yeah, you, you, it might have to be like uh, the prerequisite is that you have watched it. Right, you know, right. You, can't, you can't show it in class <laughs> and you can't assign it as homework. It's yeah, kind of a long assignment. Come on in and we'll see what happens. So for yeah. that class, do you read novels yeah, we, and dissect them? Yep, we read an you know, I, I Analyze, I prefer to dissecting. Mm. Dissecting has sure. a certain bloody character to Biological it. Biological character? Yeah. Um, my hard science colleagues can handle that stuff. <laughs> yeah, uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, sure. uh, which is sort of where American vernacular voice fiction really begins. Mm. Uh, the Awakening by Coach Kate Chopin, uh, The Great Gatsby, uh, Man with the Golden Arm, although you often have to cut that for space purposes. Nelson Algren's great book. Mm. Um, On the Road, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, 
a Vietnam novel by a Chicago writer called, named Larry Heineman called Paco's Story, and mm-hmm. I end with Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon. Gotcha. Now, do you get to choose those? Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, you're teaching at any university with the exception of uh, certain language courses or some composition programs where they mandate a common textbook. You're, you're in charge. I get to do whatever I want, pretty much. So why those books? Were those books that spoke to you? Uh, they speak to me. Um, but they also create a, a sort of almost decade by decade his, literary history of American mm. fiction, which is, I, you know, you always want to leave your students with uh, more than one thing. I want to I want to get them to think about what American identity is, how diversion and inclusion are are a problem going way back to the nineteenth century, how you know race works, how class works, how gender works. Um, you know, the question with Kate Chopin's novel is, can a woman be American? If the ideal of being an American is Huck Finn letting out for the territories, mm. she doesn't get to let out for the territories. Is she excluded from this idea of Americanness? But I also want to give them my field. I want them to walk out of there knowing a little bit about literary history, about genre and canon, uh, the sort of technical stuff of literature. Sure. And so that that reading list is basically, you know, um, it's it's male heavy. I could I could try to g- gender diversify it a little more, but it's like almost a decade by decade. You got realism, you got regionalism, you got modernism, you got different kinds of postmodernism. You've got race, gender, and class in all of them with different emphases. Um, so it's just, uh, I always try to do, do both things. I balance my, well, any professor who's honest in an English department will say the subtitle for every class is my, my favorite book. <laughs> right? But sure. we, yeah. usually, we usually don't come out and admit that because, you know, pulling back the curtain on Oz can be problematic. Yeah. But yeah, yeah it's, uh, you know, you try to accomplish as much as you can. And so when I want my students to leave my class better equipped for other English classes, but also equipped to think about this stuff in the real world. Mm. So. Gotcha. Now I'd like to uh, back it up. So you went to Loyola for undergrad and then PhD from Northwestern. Correct. So are you a local local guy? Um, I've lived in the 606 zip code my entire life. Really? 606. Okay. So you, yeah. And that's Rogers Park? Right. Okay, I've so lived, you grew up around here. In uh, in about an hour, I could walk to every place I ever lived. <laughs> um, yeah. Tui, Glenwood, Lunt, Loyola. Which is why your handle is yeah. Rogers Parkman on Twitter. Yeah, and when you know my brother and a few of my other friends were trying to nudge me to get on Twitter, and there was that parody account that I think is kind of tapered off called Florida Man, mm, where yeah. the guy would just mm-hmm. retweet you know right. ridiculous headlines. Yeah. Florida you know, Man wrestles alligator yeah, and for, loses an arm, or right, whatever. Yeah. Or, yeah, Florida Man brings alligator into movie theater. <laughs> right. um, lots of alligator stuff yeah, in tons, Florida. Tons of that. Yeah. And I'm like, that's hilarious. So I looked, and Rogers Parkman was available, <laughs> so I grabbed it. You know, right that's, on. That's all it took. Yeah. Um, so how, what was that like growing up around here? I mean, I just moved into the neighborhood about a, a, a year ago. I fell right. in love with it, but uh, you've been here forever. Well, it's. I've been here forever, but I'm not the only one. I mean, demographically, I'm a freak, you know, mm. to live in the same neighborhood forever. And it, it was an accident. I mean, when I finished my PhD at Northwestern, I applied for jobs literally from Maine to San Diego, Florida to, to Alaska, mm. Guam to Turkey. I mean, mm. I applied for jobs over the world and didn't get any. So I was ready to go. Yeah. It just didn't happen. And instead, I managed to stick around Northwestern in various teaching positions until this administrative thing yeah. that opened up. Um, I also taught Loyola a little bit after graduating from there, after getting my PhD as well. Um, and I, you know, I, I literally, most days of my life, I see someone I went to grade school with, <laughs> right? And that's got its ups and downs, and yeah. its pluses and minuses. Um, I have a sense of layered time. Like when I go, th- when I go down, the- this is something I teach in my Chicago Writers class. Um, it's, when you think about how you know a city, I th- think it's two things. It's horizontal knowledge. Like when you first go somewhere, you get a, a, a one-layer map in your head. Okay. Over time, you build up layers. You build up vertical knowledge. So when I go down Sheridan Road, I remember what was there that's not there anymore. Yeah. And I, I have memories and 
you know, the, the Granada Center was the Granada Theater, and there was all these great restaurants there. And, you know, you don't sit around and, and just be a nostalgic, you know, back in my day, blah, 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 because <laughs> then you're boring. Yeah. But you have, when you're in the same place for a long time, you build this kind of depth. Um, so, like, when you gave me your address, I was pretty sure I knew which building it was. Yeah. I, knew, I knew I was going to have to come eastbound on Farwell because it's one way. Mm-hmm. And I figured it was one of the courtyard buildings. Yep. Um, and sure enough, here it is. Here it is. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, I've seen the neighborhood change a lot. It was always diverse in certain ways. There was a class diversity mm-hmm. that I didn't understand when I was a kid. Uh, we were on Glenwood Avenue, half a block north of Devon. And some of our classmates in school um, lived above the stores on Devon Avenue, like mm-hmm. above the, uh, the butcher shop, Bornhoffens, or above the uh, uh, bakery, which I'm blanking on the name of, which is sad. Um, I know I could ask, I know eight people I could ask, and they'll know it. Arfa's, Arfa's Bakery. Um, and there was always this thing like where you weren't supposed to go to their house to play with them. Um, instead, they came over to our two flat on Glenwood and, mm-hmm. you know, with a little postage stamp backyard. And only, you know, later when I started doing this urban study stuff did I realize sort of what the class bias there was. Like, mm-hmm. they're living above the store on Devon. That's a, a cheap rent because it's mm-hmm. a less desirable thing. Um, they don't have a backyard. They've got a back porch that leads to an alley. Yeah. Right? So... That kind of knowledge, but I, I grew up, I lived all over the neighborhood. I worked at Captain Nemo's, which is still there. I, yeah. I had lunch there yesterday. <laughs> like, you know, I'm making, you know, joking with Steve Ragusi, who I've known since 1977, <laughs> um, or 70, yeah, seven was when I worked there, 77, 79. So, you, and I attended bar at a bar on Devon for 27 years, and another one that's now uh, changed hands and is a different name over on, on Broadway. It used to be Hamilton's now in 63. Hmm. So I've got this kind of depth going on. Yeah. Um, and I love how diverse the neighborhood is now. It's, um, the other day I, I tweeted about it. I rode my bike literally half a mile from my house over to Farwell Pier. And I heard at least six, maybe seven languages being hmm. spoken. And the only reason I can't say if it was six or seven was I can't tell Polish from Russian. <laughs> right? Um, sure. But, you know, English, Spanish, um, Arabic, uh, I think Farsi, mm. um, some African language, I'm not familiar enough to know, and at, and at least Polish and or, and, and or maybe Russian. Right. Um, and I was not, like, going out of my way f- to seek diversity. I was just riding my bike to the beach, yeah. where on the beach all these people are, who yeah. are my neighbors. And it's, it's, it's just great. And watching the waves of immigration come, like in the 90s, there were a lot of Bosnian immigrants here. Mm. And then um, we have a lot of Somalis now and East Africans and West Africans. And, of course, the, the Latino presence keeps growing along Clark Street. I mean, you don't got to go to Pilsen for good tacos anymore. Oh, yeah. You can right? go right over there. Yeah. yeah. And there's, I can throw a, throw a burrito and, yeah, exactly. and hit a bunch of places that are fantastic. <laughs> well, don't throw your burrito. That's yeah. burrito <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, it is. Um, but the, like, and some of the places really show the, the ethnic succession in the neighborhood. So um, El Chirito, which is two doors north of Devon on the west side of Clark, mm. Um, used to be Dewey's. It was like a, it had a beautiful old neon sign that said hamburgers and chili hmm. that got like bought by some hipster bar on division that went out of business. And then the part of the sign, the big, one of those big light arrows was taken down. Now it just says hamburgers and chili. Um, and now it's got an awning that's very colorful and it's a Latino, you know, it's a Mexican joint. Yeah. But above the door in the glazed tile, it still says Dewey's. Ah, right on. Uh, and it's still got the same four little bar stools at the counter and the same, you know, maybe eight <laughs> tables jammed together that might hold 12 people yeah. if everyone's inhaling. Um, and then it's like, <laughs> so when I was a kid, you went there for hamburgers or chili, and now you go there for tacos or burritos. Yeah. It's still Rogers Park. Yeah. Yeah. I love this neighborhood. Yeah. And like I said, I've only been here a year, but I, I've turned into an evangelist. You know, I, I proselytize about it to everyone who, who will listen. It's just fantastic. Where did you come from? I uh, grew up around DeKalb, 
okay. and then uh, have kind of bounced around Illinois. Um, lived we. This is our sixth apartment in seven years, I think. So we we went all over the very, suburbs. Very and, mobile. It's yeah. good. Yes, everything can pack up in about yep, pretty much. boxes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've gotten good at it. We just signed a second year for a lease, and this is the first time that we've Whoa. actually Sweet. done that and then not looked around and been like, let's get the fuck out of here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, we really, really love this neighborhood. So yeah. uh, it's it's fascinating to talk to somebody who's been here for so yeah. long. So so what was your upbringing like? I mean, you, you, you mentioned right. the classes, the, the kind of right. class um, struggles that you saw, but obviously you have turned into a, a literary fellow. Were, right. were you always like that? Well, yeah. I mean, I was a, I was the kid who got beat up because he always raised his hand in class and answered questions mm. and was reading books and comic books all the time. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, growing up in Rogers Park, um, religious identity really matters. So mm. my family was very connected to St. Ignatius Parish. Um, Catholic? You know, yeah. Okay. Uh, Rogers Park, I mean, Rogers Park, three, two parishes, Ignatius, which is the smallest in the archdiocese, and Jerome's, which is the biggest. Um, and we moved, when we moved over to Lunt, it was a different, uh, school and stuff. And that was kind of disruptive, but basically you grew up in a neighborhood where, and I don't want to get Norman Rockwell on us, but <laughs> literally everybody on the block knew everybody on the block. And you could, you know, on a summer's day like this, you went out and you came home when the lights came on. And if you were having dinner at the Lamont's next door, you just called and Mrs. Lamont would call and say, I'm making grilled cheese sandwiches. Yeah. And you know, the another day my mom would feed their kids. I mean, it was just that kind of. Um, wide open neighborhood. Yeah. Um, there's a little less of that now, I just think, because of the uh, you know the sort of paranoia about stranger danger stuff, right. and kids don't walk to school anymore the way I did as a child. Um, but it was very much a neighborhood where you had you know friends and enemies, and um, it was multi generational. My grandparents and a couple of my uncles and an aunt lived downstairs from us in the, in the three flat or two flat. <clears throat> and so you know, like literally. Um, there were people who I met later in my life who just knew I was a Schneider because that was my uncle. Mm. I look, looked like my uncle. <laughs> so they, this, this guy who I despise beyond words, and that's part of a neighborhood. Like you, it's not everybody loves each other. There's yeah. people who you're like, why don't you live somewhere else so I don't ever see you? Um, <laughs> called me Schneider for years because he didn't know my name and I wanted to keep it that way. <laughs> but he, had, he thought I was one of my uncles who he used to beat up when he was a kid because uh-huh. you know, he was the neighbor, one of the neighborhood bullies. Um, so, but you had, you had this sense of connection to places. So I've already mentioned Bornhoffen's, uh, butcher shop. You know, my uncle worked there. It was around the corner on Devon. Then they moved over to Broadway. Uh, Frank sold it a, maybe, geez, seven, eight years ago now, but it's still a German butcher shop, you know, mm-hmm. sort of a holdover from the old neighborhood. Um, and Canines, where I worked on Devon has been there for, since 72. Yeah. Um, I didn't go in there before I was 21 because I knew I'd like it and I didn't want to <laughs> like have to use a fake ID and be somebody else. Yeah. Um, Conversely, I didn't go into Bruno's, uh, the bar like on Sheridan, until I was 21 because Bruno Rohde, the owner, knew exactly how old I was yeah. because he was friends with my parents and lived on the <laughs> lived around the corner on Arthur. I've never been there. That's like the package package goods place, right? Right. right. Yeah. It's a Love little, places like that. Little little low key bar, you know. TV, yeah. Sox and Cubs games will be on. There's Wi Fi, mm-hmm. and uh, sit in the window if you want to say hi, and sit in the back in the dark if you don't. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, did you go to Sullivan? No, I went to St. Ignatius. Okay. Uh, family had a... My parents and my grandparents went to Jesuit schools. I wasn't nudged to it. But again, this is a neighborhood story. So that you used to have three grade schools in the neighborhood. Now you've only got one. Um, they've all been consolidated at, at St. Gertrude's down in Edgewater. Down in Edgewater. Two blocks south. <laughs> three yeah. blocks south of Devon. And, but back in the day, you had three separate grade schools. And they'd have a high school night uh, where they rotated it among the schools for kids going into eighth grade to like decide what Catholic high school to go to. So I go there thinking it'll be St. Pat's or St. Ben's, you know, one of the Northside schools. I wasn't really even thinking about it. But then 
like all these students from St. Ignatius and a couple of teachers came and were so enthusiastic about the place. I took the entrance exam and got in. And yeah. yeah. It was such a tough school that it made Loyola easy. I mean, I, I, I say this with no knock on my professors at Loyola, especially in the English department. They were great. But I found college kind of a snap oh, because yeah. I'd had a, such a rigorous high school. Huh. Yeah. But I, I also got to learn the city. And I, I should emphasize, I love this neighborhood. I'm, I'm totally dedicated to it. But my girlfriend lives in Evergreen Park, 91st mm. and Kedzie, and I spend a lot of time down there, and I ride my bike all over the city. Yeah. I ride my bike from 6,500 north to 9,500 south regularly. Mm. And when you do that, you get to know the whole city. You can be a neighborhood loyalist and also be a city guy. Right. Like, I don't believe the north side and the south side and the west side are three different worlds. They're one city. Yeah. Um, and you only get to know that, though, if you go out and experience it. Sure. Right? Sure. So you went from uh, Jesuit high school to Jesu- Jesuit university. Is that uh, something that's still present in your life? That uh, um, I, yeah, I'm not. I'm not religious. I'm uh, the term my brother uses is culturally Catholic. Hmm. Like you know, Jewish yeah, Jewish people totally, who are yeah. who, who don't keep kosher, but <laughs> go to go to you know when Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah they go to the services. Right. And, um, you know they they sort of. As one of my Jewish friends say, Jewish. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, sure. The old Woody Allen line. So, like, yeah, yeah. when I'm, uh, oh, it was Woody Allen line. I figured it's my buddy Brad would steal from Woody <laughs> Allen. Um, but you know, when I'm angry or something, often the sort of initial curses that come to my mind are very Catholic, like okay. Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, <laughs> sweet bleeding Christ on the cross. <laughs> you know, the kind of stuff that my great aunts would say. Yeah. yeah. Although with less of the bleeding and the, the anger. Sure. <laughs> so. Uh, so you go, you are an English major? Yep, English major, uh, summa cum laude, blah, blah, blah. And then went to Northwestern for my PhD. Mm. Um, now for, for people who are listening to this who are not intimately familiar <laughs> with the, the geography of the north side of Chicago, far north side of Chicago, Loyola is in Rogers Park, so it's blocks away from... Yeah, I grew up grew four blocks up. away. My parents met there. My grandfather was, a, was an alum. Yeah. And yeah, then Northwestern is, what, two miles north? Uh, two and a half miles north of the city limits. So, yeah. it, and Rogers Park, where Loyola is, it's the far southeast corner. It borders Evanston, it's, it's which a, is where yeah, Northwestern is. Yeah. Right. It's about five miles door to door from my office to my apartment. Mm. Do you ride your bike? Oh, yeah. All the time. Right on. As long as the streets are dry and it's not howling wind. Yeah. It's it's the way to go around here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, my whole life just basically is either side of Sheridan Road, northbound, and southbound. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, uh, sorry, I cut you off there. So, you no, you, you went uh, Loyola and then you went to uh, Northwestern. Right. So, what, why why Northwestern and why decide to mm-hmm. continue your studies after? Well, I wanted, well, when I was an undergrad, I, I put myself through school. I was on the six year plan. Um, you know, I was waiting tables and working security guard jobs. And actually, I should reverse that order. I worked tons of jobs the, until I turned 21, and then it was all bar and restaurant jobs because mm. that's where the money is. Yeah, um, and that's my family had been in that business for generations, so I, you know, I knew I knew how to do that. Yeah. and you know, so it's, it's my third senior year, <laughs> and I'm thinking <laughs> super duper duper yeah, senior. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, well, I took time off when I was broke, and I, you know, went part time when I was broke, and so six years I was in no rush. In my family, if you're not in jail, you're a success. So <laughs> there wasn't any pressure. You know, I didn't have to go to law school, yeah. but I was, you know, there was two things I liked and was good at, and it was bars slash restaurants and school. Yeah. And I, you know, in 1985, 86, I'm thinking, well, I'd like to have a job where my hands are dry most of the time and maybe where <laughs> I get summers off to go to ball games, and maybe where I get health insurance. Yeah. So continuing for the PhD, and then I got a, I got a Javits fellowship, which was a federal thing that uh, they, they've eliminated, of course which helped pay for it. Gotcha. Um, and, the, and I applied at Chicago Northwestern and, and University of Illinois because I didn't want to go far 
and Illinois didn't offer Illinois offered a stipend and but I had to teach right away which I didn't want to do I didn't think I was ready mm-hmm. Chicago offered me bupkis so I told him to fuck off <laughs> right. um, and now, I'm, now I work at the University of Chicago Press as an editor so it's all it's all forgiven <laughs> all is forgiven yep water um, on the bridge but the uh, Northwestern offered me a really good deal and then I negotiated an even better deal before I ended up getting this Javits thing that paid my way so gotcha. Um, so I spent six years getting a PhD, so 12 years of college, and wow. then, you know, nobody gets humanities, PhDs, seven out of 10 never get a tenure-track job, mm-hmm. and I was one of those guys because of the timing, I think. Um, the There was miscalculations as to how many PhDs were going to be needed to replace professors who were retiring. The sub- Around the country or at Northwestern? At, at everywhere. Okay. I mean, so, yeah. no, PhDs are, don't, you don't stay, you don't stay. Yeah, it's, in, not, it's not required in, or it's, anything. Yeah. Well, it's exogamous. They want you to go away. Mm-hmm. They want you to go somewhere else. Um, you you would never stay where you got your PhD to or where you'd never get your PhD in the humanities where you got your BA mm-hmm. and you would never stay and teach in uh, tenure line where you got your PhD. Mm-hmm. It's considered incestuous. You're supposed to go away and yeah. you could go away, become a famous professor somewhere else and maybe they want you back. But, right. Right. but the um, Supreme court struck down mandatory retirement ages. So suddenly there <laughs> all these old guys weren't going anywhere right. and there was an overproduction of PhDs gotcha. and the rules changed. It, um, used to be, you wrote your dissertation. Your dissertation got you a job. You made your dissertation into a book. That's what got you tenure. Hmm. It almost got to the point where you had to have a book contract to get a job. And wow. that's if you're not thinking that way all along, and I wasn't, you're, you're going to be behind the eight ball. Yeah. So I continued tending bar and teaching part-time, and then some full-time stuff happened at Northwestern teaching-wise, um, and then evolved into this administrative job that I've got yeah. now. So I just, right it's, it's blind luck, just yeah. pure luck and you know the Chicago thing, connections. The, the full-time <laughs> teaching happened because one of my mentors – got a Guggenheim and needed a year off at the very last minute. And I think he said to the chair of the English department, I know who can take over my courses. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the camera pans around to you, tending bar, and you're like, me? Yeah. Quite, quite literally. Yeah. Yes, I got, I got that. This is before email. I yeah. got a phone call <laughs> saying, are you free next year? So I'm like, dry your hands yes. off and answer the phone. Oh, yeah. And it was crazy. I would literally, and I didn't give up the bartending because I needed the and After sure. a year, who knows? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I was also cleaning out the bar, so I would some some days I was literally like at five in the morning, dumping you know plastic bags full of beer bottles yeah. and mopping up vomit in the bathroom, <laughs> and then at nine a.m. I'm lecturing to two hundred Northwestern undergrads yeah. about the Great American Novel. <laughs> <laughs> it let, let me do it. Let me do a, some sort of metaphor. Yeah, There's some yeah. sort of metaphor in there. I'm sure you can uh, tease it, it, it out. Made me made me feel quite good about things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Uh, yeah, you seem to be again. I don't. I don't know you. This is the first time we've ever met, right. but but uh, you seem to be just from from what I've uh, know of you online, mm-hmm. a man of many interests right. uh, and a man of many. You've got your tentacles in a lot of things. One of the <laughs> things that struck me earlier that you said is is this. Uh, you had this sort of dichotomy, or not even dichotomy. This this mixture of bars and school, right. and that appears to be something that you're still doing, but uh, just in a more intellectual right. way. Right, right. Can you can you explore that a little bit? Yeah, and one of the great things about my life. <laughs> You know, when I was a kid, I was interested in books and comic books and baseball and riding my bicycle. And I get to do all that. Such an American still. kid. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Red, white, and blue. Yeah. Um, you know, and as I aged, you know, obviously saloons and a few other things came into play sure. that I'm still doing. But basically, you know, studying Chicago writers means studying the places they write about. Mm. And a lot of the great... Can you unpack that a little bit? Well, when we say Chicago writer, what do we mean by that? Like, what's the terminology of place? So like Dickens and London or mm-hmm. Joyce in Dublin or, you know, Shakespeare in London, right? There's all sorts of ways of talking about sense of place. But Chicago writers as a particular focus for me 
eventually led me away from just sort of quote unquote pure literary analysis um, or literary analysis primarily connected to larger like American lit things and more into like drilling down into what the idea of sense of place means mm-hmm. and how writers evoke a sense of place with not just metaphoric or descriptive language, but with what they choose to write about at all and the kind of places and spaces they depict as, as crucial for making Chicagoans who they are, hmm. um, f- the sites of conflict, the sites of concord. Um, and so that led into, you know, lots of these writers, you know, Algren maybe especially, but also Farrell to a lesser degree. Um, and, you know, people like Mike Royko, and I, I treat journalism as part of the literary tradition. Yeah. Um, and a lot of filmmakers and a lot of uh, comic book writers, you know, bars are kind of central places where things happen. Right. Um, one of my friends who's a writer says, you know, bars are where people tell each other secrets, which is I an, like that. an interesting observation. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> and so that led me to, like, just sort of paying more attention to that kind of thing. Like, where where is this thing happening? And... Um, I looking, you know, I used to teach the Chicago writer stuff as kind of a cage match between Saul Bellow and Nelson Algren. Mm. Um, picture Mothra and Gamera <laughs> and Godzilla stomping sure. Tokyo, and it got it got stale quick because the mm. the sort of argument in the academy about art for art's sake versus political literature mm-hmm. um, is a false dichotomy. Like every every artistic statement has some kind of political content, and any political thing you want to say, you've got to put in some kind of aesthetic form. Sure. So it's the, you can't untangle these things, but. Because of critical history, for decades, people did. They, you know, this is a political writer. This is a writer who is a writer's writer. Mm. Um, and I was getting bored with my own teaching, which is a really bad thing because your students pick up on it instantaneously. Um, so I was looking around for a different way to conceptualize uh, Chicago literature rather than just this kind of, you know, again, Nelson Ogden, Upton Sinclair, James Farrell, Richard Wright on one side, and Saul Bellow and a few other arty types on the other side. So I read a book by a, a Chinese-American uh, scholar. I, th- I think of him as a geographer-philosopher because he's sort of – he's a very, very deep thinker, but he's uh, in the geography department someplace at hmm. the University of Minnesota, I think, uh, named Yifu Tuan. Uh, that's spelled T-U-A-N if anyone wants to go look this book up. But it was a book called uh, Space and Place, The Perspective of Experience. And it uh, – six pages in, a sentence leaps out and burns itself into my brain, and I've been using it ever since. And he's talking about infants and development and how people learn, you know, space and where they are and how to relate to other objects in space. <clears throat> but I think it applies in a more general way. Um, and the line is, what begins as undifferentiated space becomes place as we get to know it better and endow it with values. Mm. And I kind of reduce that to, a, to an equation. Space plus values equals place. So think about, say... Uh, Starbucks versus your local independent cafe. Right. Well, both of them are the same space. They're both places people buy caffeinated beverages. But one of them, the music is dictated by corporate headquarters. The people wear uniforms. The food comes delivered in shrink wrap plastic. Um, you you always know what you're going to get when you go to Starbucks because it's a Starbucks wherever it is. Meanwhile, like the place I go in Evanston, the Unicorn Cafe, you know, the woman who owns it now is a, you know, neat freak. Everything's always pretty mm-hmm. clean. But they people work in their room whatever they want and the art on the walls is by regular customers and it's for sale and the music is whatever they, again whatever they want to play and it's not the same thing it's not the same place because sure. the values make it different think about like a, you know a gay bar down in boys town versus uh, you know one of the bro bars on division street mm-hmm. now those are both 
places that sell alcohol where people go to meet people to hook up. But the values are very different otherwise, sure. right? So my research into saloon culture sort of grew out of that. Like what makes a, a saloon or a bar or a tavern, a, you know, what sociologist uh, Ray Oldenburg called the third place, right? Not home, not work, <laughs> a place you go of your own free will, you know, build community. Um, what makes those places uh, unique? What makes them interesting? What makes them good or bad? Um, and so my last uh, latest book project was editing and annotating a book by the great Chicago journalist George Aid, uh, A-D-E, who was uh, a big, big deal in the late 19th, early 20th century, and he's now largely forgotten. Um, you know, he was the first Broadway playwright to have three plays on Broadway at once. Wow. One of the earliest uh, film directors and writers, because hmm. that industry grew up in Chicago. But he'd been a, just a really incredibly successful newspaper columnist. Um, and he was a weird combination of things. He was probably gay, um, but he was a big college football fan. Ross Aid Stadium down at Purdue. Hmm. He's the aide. Uh-huh. Helped raise money for it. Um, staunch Republican, but a libertarian kind of like very anti-prohibition. Hmm. So he writes this book, The Old Time Saloon, not wet, not dry, just history, in 1931 as a polemic to sort of nudge people toward repeal. Mm. of prohibition and prohibition is usually talked about especially in this neck of the woods as kind of the women's christian temperance union versus fun <laughs> and that's it's way more complicated than that it was you know the anti-saloon league it was ethnic prejudice you know what what right-wing asshats say now about muslims and mexicans they used to say about irish and germans yeah the irish irish whiskey and german lager was a threat like taco trucks on every corner <laughs> and you know just so you know you can get delve into this historical stuff and i've one of my mentors at Northwestern, Carl Smith, is recent. Is you know, I've been. I keep pointing point out to him that people keep calling me an historian, and I'm not. I'm a literary guy. And he's yeah. like, take a compliment. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. It's like I somehow, I somehow got prom, I somehow got promoted to historian. I, I had to look you up because I thought you were a history professor. Yeah. I was like no shit, he's an English, English professor. Yeah. All right, right. It on. always it always comes back to the literature for me. But you know, you got a historic. You got to put things in historical context. Sure, I was um, a, I was a double major, history and English. So you're you're, oh, well, you're preaching to the choir, yeah, and great. I got my master's in journalism. So I feel like we're best friends now, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, you haven't known me long enough to call me Billy. That's how you know. Okay. The, well, people, people who've known me my whole life get yeah. to call me that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I'm sorry. I, I, I cut you off there. So no, you, were, you were on a roll there. You were talking. So well, I, I, I'm interested that. Okay. So, so, so you've got this, this sort of equation of mm-hmm. what equals place. Space and, plus and you, values yeah, equals place. Yeah. And, and you're, you're examining bars, mm-hmm. um, not dissecting, uh, <laughs> examining and so how do you choose what to kind of throw your intellectual weight behind? What, what, what really gets you going? Well, what gets me going is looking at things that people think are obvious and simple and finding out that they're subtle and complex. So, for instance, this, this dynamic of place. There's two, other, there's two sort of frameworks to think about place. Um, public, semi-public, and private is one dynamic. And transition and versus destination spaces is another dynamic. Okay. So think of your average bar, by definition, is a semi-public place. Semi-public places, you have to, anyone can come in, but you have to play by the rules and you have to, there's a reason you have to be there. Mm. So like you can't just go into a bar and sit down and not buy anything, right? right? Um, private places, you have to be invited in, like your home, your an office, whatever. Public places are like the street, the park, the beach. Anyone mm. can be there anytime. Now, saloons get, or bars get complicated because in some ways they are an extension of the sidewalk, historically speaking especially. Um, before Prohibition, bars would have been like literally 
people would have stood in the doorway, stood outside, come in and gone. And so there's a sense that the bar is in, in a way a public space, even though it's officially semi-public. But once you're inside a, that semi-public place, there's further divisions. Behind the bar is private. You don't go back there unless you work there. Sure. Um, if you sit at the bar, that's kind of semi-public in that anyone can sit next to you and strike up a conversation, right? If you're sitting over at a table, though, people don't get to just sit at your table, right? That's more of a private space. Mm-hmm. Um, the the <clears throat> parts of the bar people walk to to get in and out of the bathroom or to get from behind the bar to into the room, those are transitional spaces. The the tables and bar stools are destinations. Um, so within any, and that all can shift, right? You know, the bartender who puts down the little like lid thing that closes off mm-hmm. the, the pathway or the regular customer who like stands there in the pathway but can do it because he's a regular and they know him and when he sees the bartender coming and gets out of the way yeah. versus the stray who's not a regular and that's about values too like who's a regular who's not mm. that's how the people in the space shape it so if you look at your your average bar it's just a, a bar but then you start thinking about that those spatial dynamics and it relates to other kinds of identity um you know if you're a, a young woman alone in a bar and you're sitting at the bar you are more likely to have some guy Try to hit, hit it up on you. Right. If you're sitting at a table, it's easier for you to deflect that because the, the table is more of a private space, you know, depending on the the sort of uh, vibe in the bar. Yeah. So this <clears> is, <throat> I mean, this is kind of veering into philosophy. Oh, yeah, in, absolutely. In a way. Absolutely. So, so, okay, you, I understand all that, but why does that get you going? Why why does that dynamic get you it, going? I think it gets me going the same. Well, my students ask me, why why care about Chicago literature? Yeah. And my attitude is the more you know about the place you live, the more interesting it is to live there. And this is the same thing. The more you know about or the the deeper you think about the routine parts of everyday life, the richer and more interesting they are Hmm. for me. That's just why I do everything I do. Like I also I write about hot dog stands like I don't know if you've noticed this, but the yellow signage hot dog stands tend to have yellow, the Vienna beef, the yellow, um, and so I noticed uh, uh, two, three years ago, I did a tour for the History Museum with uh, an editing partner on another book about uh, the 1893 fair. And we built in a, a stop at a hot dog stand. Like a, and everyone loved it. So I'm like, I pitched it to the museum. I'm like, let's just do a hot dog tour. Yeah. So then my girlfriend and I are driving around um, the south side looking for hot dog stands. And there's not as many as there used to be. You know, ta- way more taquerias nowadays. Mm-hmm. But I noticed that the yellow signage. And then I noticed, what other places have yellow signage? Currency exchanges. Muffler shops, pawn shops, like the the big yellow sign with red or blue lettering mm. is a, a a symbol in the urban landscape of a marginal thing. Like hot dog stands, they're the first victim of gentrification because they they sell cheap stuff to poor people fast and have narrow profit margins. Yeah. So when a neighborhood goes upscale, if you've got a hot dog stand in a storefront, then they're going to quintuple the rent and put in a Starbucks. You're done, yeah. right? So the hot dog stands that survive, and there's a few in, in gentrified space. I mean, there's there's one downtown on Adams um, in, a, in a little narrow, narrow storefront in an old, old building that sooner or later is going to get knocked down. <laughs> there's one at Chicago and Rush, downtown dogs, in, a, again, a, a small building like right next door to a little bar called Pippin's. You know, sooner or later, Loyal is going to buy that. to my brother who's obsessed with Pippins and who is going to be listening to this. So. It's, it's, not a, it's not a bad joint. A little loud for me, but yeah, a bit. sometimes I like to sit in those tables with the windows open. Mm. That's mm-hmm. nice. Um, the little tiny tables are just the right size for grading papers. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, you know, you see, so then, you, then I start to see the city differently. I, like, I look for those yellow signs now. 
and like I get pissed off. Western Union has been buying up a lot of the currency exchanges, which are like for people who don't know, a currency exchange is a poor man's bank. You can go in there and you can pay your utility bills. You can get a money order made up if you don't have a checking account. Um, you can you know get city stickers there and things like that. Um, and they're they're only in marginal neighborhoods because in prosperous neighborhoods people have bank accounts. Right. So Western Union has been buying up a lot of the currency exchanges, and their color scheme is blue and green. I'm like fuck. That ruins my <laughs> my my unified field theory of yellow signage is down. But I've I've talked with a few other people about it, like uh, Tony Fitzpatrick, the great Chicago. Uh, artist and poet and I was at his uh, literally at his mom's wake and he asked me what I was working on and I said this hot dog stand stuff and I said the yellow signs he's like yeah currency exchanges and muffler shops I'm like dude you're he gets it it. yeah exactly (laughs) like we both are big aficionados of Western Avenue with all its garish bullshit Mm. (laughs) Um, so yes and that by noticing that I've made my my bike rides around Chicago more interesting and I think I think honest scholarship should always be driven by genuine personal interest as opposed to what do I write in order to get ahead in my field or whatever. I mean, and I, that sounded pretty negative, I suppose. Um, and I'm not, I'm not accusing any of my colleagues of being dishonest scholars. But I'm lucky enough that I'm, I'm not like – I can write for The Reader or Third Coast Review or New City or Chicago Magazine and not worry about you know, peer-reviewed blah, blah, because I'm sure. on teaching track. Yeah. So when you're genuinely interested in something, you're going to write stuff that other people find interesting. Yeah. Um, so like I'll, I did an event at the uh, Chicago, Chicago History Museum has Hot Dog Fest every August. <laughs> and two years ago, I did a thing about why people care about ketchup on your hot dog. Yeah. Right? So why is it? That, that's a Chicago now, thing. It's, it's uh, my friend Neil Steinberg, the Sun-Times columnist, has the best answer, which is it's a way to discriminate. We we can't we're not supposed to do it on race, class, and gender anymore. It's a way to discriminate. Sure. It's you know nobody gives a shit what you put on your pizza, what you put on your Italian beef, which is another great Chicago folk food. What you put on your you know pork chop sandwich, bone in pork chop sandwich from Jim. Nobody cares. Mm. Only ketchup on hot dogs makes Get you not going. Chicago. Yeah. And it's you know uh, Bob Schwartz from Vienna Beef wrote a book called Never Put Ketchup on Your Hot Dog, and he's got a thing where it's like. You know, it, there's a culinary rationale behind yeah. it, right? You know, it's too sweet. It overpowers the other flavors of the other condiments on the classic Chicago dog, which are yellow mustard, green relish, white onions, tomato. Then people argue cucumber spear, pickle spear, mm-hmm. sport peppers, and celery salt. Celery salt is the real mystery. Where the fuck did that come from? Yeah. I am going to find out someday. <laughs> it's, it's Someday I will figure that one out. Yeah, you're the guy to do it, I think. Yeah, somebody mm-hmm. tested, like, what? What else do you use celery salt for? And I said that in someone. Chili, chili and apparently goulash and oh. on uh, Bloody Marys. Oh, sure. But yeah, there's yeah, no, yeah. I mean, there's a billions of pounds of celery salt go on <laughs> Chicago-style hot dogs, and some people don't even know what it is. Yeah. Anyway, but if you put ketchup on it, it ruins it all. Yeah. I personally am a libertarian on this topic. I don't, I get, I go low on the, I just get mustard and onions. I don't like a lot of fancy. Really? Yeah. Wow. I mean, once in a while, I'll have a fully loaded dog. That's for, Yeah, well, exactly. Yeah. But that's it. You, you hit the word, like... So I was doing this tour, and I tweeted, I tweeted about it, and I got my brother to give me a signal boost. Uh, my brother's Dan Savage of Savage Love. Is so, he really? Yeah. No shit. No, wow. no fucking well, shit. all right then. Yeah. So, yeah, and this is like the third podcast I've done this week. And, you know, I was at his taping last Sunday. Last no Thursday, So it's like wow. podcasts everywhere. Yeah. I want to start one about the Blues Brothers, by the way. Oh, yeah? Yeah. The Scamods cast, it'll be called. That <laughs> scene, state, county, municipal, yeah, offender, batter system. Yeah. Anyway, and I've, t- I've already... Trademarked and copyrighted that for anyone who's listening. But the, uh, uh, so I ask him, I, I just tweet out, you know, is ketchup on your hot dog okay? And he gives me a signal boost. 
and my Twitter feed lights up, and the the two discourses are about religion, like it's abomination, it's blasphemy, it, it's a sin, and I'm like, it's a condiment on your hot dog. Yeah. And some people are like, well, for little kids, it's okay. So I'm like, so you, it becomes a sin only when you're older. Like you have your, you have your, uh, you know, hot dog bar mitzvah, and you're yeah, not allowed to like have ketchup anymore. Like what, yeah. When, at what point yeah. is it not okay? Well, some uh, some hot dog stands have a sign saying, you know, uh, 17 or older, no, no really? ketchup. Oh wow. Gene okay. and Jude's has a sign, just basically no ketchup. They don't even have ketchup for their fries. Mm. The McDonald's next door sells people 25 cent packets of ketchup <laughs> for their fucking French fries because these people are evangelicals, and so there's this religious thing going on. But it's also just this sense of I can feel superior if I sure. am a purist about it. Yeah. And again, I don't put ketchup on my hot dog, but are we slaves or are we free men? <laughs> it's your <laughs> hot dog. You can put whatever you want on your yeah. hot dog. But then you're not a true Chicagoan. Sure. Right? Now, do you, do you uh, th- this could be pretty far afield here and it probably is, but I, I, I recognize a bit of the sort of provincialism that's in uh, right. bandwagon fans uh, of, of sports teams, where it's mm-hmm. this sort of like, you weren't here, like Blackhawks fans, you yeah. weren't here when they weren't on TV, so you're not a real fan. You didn't suffer through 1969, so you can't yeah, root for the Cubs. Dollar yeah, dollar And yeah, the Cubs yeah. and that whole, yeah, all that stuff. It, it, it seems to me... That's probably not just a Chicago thing. It's just yep. Chicago has co-opted the the ketchup on a, on a hot dog to make it, you right. know, that is that specific. Well, I think it's it's not just a, a co-opting or a, a Chicago-specific thing. I think it's built into how communities exist or don't. And this comes, again, from study of Chicago literature. Um, the If you want to understand Chicago neighborhoods uh, as a structural thing, not any particular neighborhood, but the the idea and the process of neighborhoods, uh, the first two or three pages, depending on which edition you're reading, of Mike Reichel's Boss, where he talks about daily growing up as a small-town kid in the different ethnic states. You know, Poland is here, and Ireland is here, and Italy is here. And, you know, you, you'll know what neighborhood you're in based on the, and I'm paraphrasing, you know, the language, the smell of the food from kitchen windows and food stores, and whether or not a stranger hits you in the head with a rock. Um, and he describes that, you know, how boundaries work, you know, boundaries are these physical barriers that people glare across, right? Mm. So like a street can be a center or an edge, depending on how people on either side of it act. And so I think what, what Roy goes on to that I, I see so many other examples of in Chicago writers is this, uh, dynamic of community and identity, which is either positive, like we have this in common, we are all. Catholics in this parish. We all came from Ireland. We have, there's a we here. Does that we require a they or a them? My grammar, after one beer, my grammar's gone away. Um, so is it like, you know, can, can we have a sense of us without having a them to pitch ourselves against? And so, so much of Chicago literature and so much Chicago history is, you know, white versus black, one ethnic group versus another ethnic group. One gender versus another in the last 30 years in terms of like neighborhoods like Boys Town or Andersonville. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the catch-up thing fits that pattern. And same thing with the bandwagon versus, you know, long-time fan. I'm a Cubs season ticket holder. I have been for decades. I've been going to ball games since I was a five-year-old. You know, I'm a lifelong Cub fan, and I don't mind bandwagon jumpers. They're fine. Some of them are cute. Come on, <laughs> girly, wave that flag. Yeah. That's fine. But the idea that, like, where I would draw the line, I'd, I'd rather sit with a knowledgeable Sox fan at a Cup Sox game than a an ignorant bandwagon jumper. Sure. Because for me, what matters is do you know baseball? Right. Um, but yeah, there's always this impetus to divide. So yeah, you 
Where were you when the, the Blackhawks sucked or where were you when the Bears sucked? Which lately has been everywhere, actually. Yep, um, absolutely. Yep, since I was born, basically. Yeah, yeah, I, I remember 85. Yep, I don't. Me I old, was, old, uh, old. <laughs> I, was, I, had, I was four months old yeah. or something like that. <laughs> well, I'm sure there's a lot of kids who are going to be hearing about the 16 Cubs. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they will. Yeah, totally. Um, so you've, you've got these other interests. Mm-hmm. Uh manhole covers um just <laughs> you know you've got you've got just these other things what yeah. what is it what what about let's start with manhole well, covers well okay so there. for those of you who don't, who don't follow at Rogers Park Man on Twitter every you should. every monday uh a few friends and i we make a habit of posting manhole covers and this actually started as um i'm, I'm working on a book about uh, the city's grid the drain oh, yeah, it's fine. It's, it happens yeah. i've worked in bars yeah. <laughs> as long as a rat doesn't come out and <laughs> well, i think you've we'll got see. a cat to handle that yeah yeah um, well, she's she, yeah. She's anyway, a, yeah, <laughs> she okay. looks very fierce right now, doesn't she? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the Chicago flag uh, pillows. Yeah, make my her, wife make made those. How about that? Those are beautiful, aren't they? Um, but anyway, the uh, so it was a, a sort of a. I got interested in paying attention again. This is paying attention to stuff you don't pay attention to. So I noticed just for some strange reason that there were two like dominant patterns of. The classic manhole cover where the it drains into the storm sewers, like two different patterns for the grate. And then I'm like, wait, there's different. They say Chicago sewers in different ways. Like there's seven or eight different designs that say Chicago sewers. And then I started noticing, hey, these ones say you know these fish on them about you know don't dump anything here, drains to a waterway. And then I started noticing the names of the foundries are on some of them. And the different patterns of ones that have like raised studs or ones that have like what they call a waffle iron thing. And it just became this like, let's see how many of these things I can find. How many can I notice? This is a theme here. You're just riding your bike around and you're noticing things and you're just being interested. Right. And so I, you know, I tweeted him and uh, uh, Bob Lorzell, who is a a good buddy of mine, a great writer and uh, sort of literary man about town. Kathleen Rooney, who's a poet and novelist at DePaul. And a couple of other people started like... Every Monday we would, and maybe I just did it on a Monday, and, and Lorzell said, "Hey, it's Manhole Cover Monday," <laughs> and then it became a, a tradition among us. I only do it on a Monday. There's a guy whose thing is iron covers, and he does it all week long. And I'm like, dude, I only retreat it on Monday. <laughs> Gotta draw the line somewhere. <laughs> but it be, there's this thing now where there's like eight or ten of us who we're looking for something that will be of interest to other people who share our interests. Sure. And this is I wrote an essay about this uh, for a, a magazine that Kathleen edited. Basically arguing, I used my, and I just gotten a smartphone, and I was, so I was taking pictures with a smartphone finally. The girlfriend got me to get a smartphone. Um, and I, I used it for two totally different things, birds and manhole covers. Manhole covers, I can remember, come back here, there's an interesting manhole cover. Birds, you got to get that shot right away. Mm-hmm. You know, one day there was a, a Cooper's Hawk, like, on the fence in the alley behind her house, just sitting there on the fence looking for lunch. Mm-hmm. And if I'd had to get a real camera out of my bag and all that, I never would have gotten the shot. So I wrote an essay about, you know, we have this idea that when people walk around staring at their phones, that it it cuts you off from the world and it makes you more inward looking. Um, And I argued it's a tool and it's how you use it. And if you're using it to find pictures to share with other people, it actually is a connecting device, not an isolating device. And that's what I see Twitter as. Twitter for me is like, I've got these things I'm interested in. I've got people I'm interested in who I follow. I retweet people who I agree with. I tweet what I want to say, um, knowing that it can be very fraught. My my dad's a hardcore right winger, and Is he? when I oh yeah, well, uh-huh. he retired to Arizona and watches Fox News. Uh, I think that I think the desert heat dries out certain aspects, <laughs> um, and I don't think he'll ever hear this. <laughs> it's, 
Um, and I, you know, when I retweet some anti-Trump things, I know he's seeing it and not happy. Like he favorites everything I do except the anti-Trump yeah. thing. Uh, yeah, teaching my dad Twitter might have been a mistake. But yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, cats out of the bag. But it, but you know, it, but it is just a a thing you do that you know it's a laugh. But then sometimes you'll see something. People will find these beautiful designs, and there's there's books of. Uh, Manhole cover designs from uh, Japan, where they make them these abstract artworks or these beautiful, beautiful works, and it's a, like a, a known hobby in England. Really, they call it drain spotting. And J- Jeremy is that based J- on train spotting, yes. or did train spotting come after? I think, I think it's I think it's a joke about train okay, spotting. Okay, all right. Well, train spotting the the Irvine Welsh novel, and he, yeah. by the way, lives in Chicago. Now. I don't know if you Does know he? that. Yeah, I did not. Um, you know, obviously, also a friend of yours. You seem to know him. I, I, I know him casually. Uh-huh. He's good friends with a good friend of mine. Well, uh, look at you. It's, right, it's, a, it's a small, I was just fucking around. It's a small world. It's a small world, dude. Small world, dude. Um, <laughs> but the yeah, I had drinks with him at um, Rogers Park Social uh, last you year. Fucking Rogers Park. Yeah. I'm there all the time. Son of a bitch. Anyway, well, remember when Dmitry Samarov had a picture show? It was a bunch of portraits. Yeah, you were in there. Yeah, and yeah. so was uh, so was Irvine. Was he? Yeah, huh, right on. They got to be pals somehow, and so. Friends of friends of friends, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I Rogers know, Park I, Social is the bar that's just down the street. People, yeah, it's for a, people who are listening, and it's it's the best bar. I remember when it was Duke's. It was the last place I was solicited yeah. by a crack whore. So, oh wow, yeah. the last place, not the first place, but the last not place. the first place. No, 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 not the first place. The last time, which was uh, ten or twelve years ago now, at least. Yeah, it was still a little, little, uh, little rougher on Glenwood mm. Avenue. So the neighborhood now has changed. Huh? It's much more arty than it used yeah. to be, and yeah. I don't mean that in a gendery way. I just mean. It's, Lifeline it's Theater. The arts it's, I mean, yeah. the arts district. Right yeah, there. that's yeah. that's my favorite of uh, the street fairs in Chicago too. Oh, of course. it's the best. Yeah. yeah, yeah. When is it? It's like late August every year. Uh, I've got it in my phone somewhere. I, yeah. yeah, I think it's late August. Okay, yeah. I might be out of town this year or ah. whatever. So, so anyway, you know, it's, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, the the guy in charge, the head of the Labor Party yeah. in England. That's one of his hobbies. Really? And they were mocking him. They were mocking him out for it, huh. and it's like, no, this is like the industrial. You were like, fuck you. <laughs> yeah, but this is the industrial history of England. Yeah. Right. You and and. I mean, I've lost track of how many times I've like been riding my bike. I see some when I pull around, and it's like some uh, you know company that never I've never heard of, never seen again, never seen. What, but it was part of our industrial history. Mm. So you know, William D. and Company was a big foundry. Chicago had its own municipal foundry, and on those ones it says it's a great big Chicago sewers in big letters, and in the middle is the uh, device, the municipal device, that Y thing with a C F. Or CMF, and this got rolling in part because I posted that, and people were like, "What does the CMF stand for?" And I'm like, "I bet it's Chicago Municipal Foundry." And then uh, uh, Ted Whalen, who's a writer and a, one of these Twitter people, he went boom, he found it, and there it is. And somebody else found like a newspaper story about when they shut it down, and hmm. it, it like generates research, it generates interest, but it's all about this willingness to just embrace whatever you find fascinating. Yeah, um, I don't know that anyone else in the world gives a a shit about yellow signs in the city, but I find it fascinating. Yeah. So this, you getting, um, mistaken, I guess for, for historian, uh, <laughs> or, uh, I mean, you, you obviously have a deep, mm-hmm. um, love for history. Mm-hmm. Why, why do you think that is? That's obviously a very abstract yeah. question, but I'm sort of trying to dig in here. What? Well, again, it, it, I guess it's the same answer I've given already, which is the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. Okay. I mean, think about uh, maybe a parallel would be people who are foodies. Now, I like, as anyone who can see me t- can tell, I like my beer. I like my food. I'm not, you know, uh, uh, I'm not somebody who denies those pleasures of the flesh. But I'm not totally obsessed with 
Like, where did this goat cheese come from? Is it tasty or not? That's all I really care about. But the people who are really into it, I've got friends who are chefs, um, and, you know, they are, this is what makes their life rich and interesting, is that kind of knowledge and that kind of, you know, creative thinking. Um, And so I'm the same way about history. It's like it makes my life more interesting to know these things. And Chicago is such a complicated place with so many things that have gone on here that there's endless, endless stuff to learn. Mm. And, you know, I've got colleagues at Northwestern who were my mentors and, you know, you know, you go from mentor to colleague if you've got good mentors, basically, Um, who are, you know, who've been doing this 20 years longer than I have who say the same thing. Like, I'm I'm only scratching the surface. And these are people who've written books about the city. And they're like, "Eh, no, so much more to do. So that's why I'm into it. It's... And I think about, you know, websites like ForgottenChicago.com. Those guys do such great walking tours, um, you know, and they're more interested maybe in architecture than I am. But I learned from the architecture about the neighborhood and the history. Um, and there's uh, just a million different people with their own little obsessions. Uh, okay. Jeff Nichols has a, uh, his, his Backwards River on Twitter. And he, you know, just in the course of the research he does as a, a history PhD student, stumbles on like old ads from whiskey companies for the Cubs and the White Sox in like 1910 mm. and post those on Twitter. And it's like, so I'm a big Cub fan and here's this whiskey ad from 1910 that is hilarious with this little drunk bear. <laughs> um, and then because I'm into bars, you know, my buddies at Nisei Lounge or the G-Man or the Hop Leaf, you know, you have this sort of ongoing conversation and then a historical fact will bubble up that matters and is interesting. So that's, for me, it's, it's, it's just about making life richer. Yeah. And that's what I try to do in my teaching you know, it's it's one reason I'm happy to come and have a conversation with you, you know? Yeah. So what else do you do to make your life richer? I uh, do what my girlfriend says. <laughs> <laughs> I like I like to travel, you know. I don't I won't get to Europe this year, but was over in England and Ireland and Scotland last year visiting for old friends. Um I like to, you know, do road trips in the States. A couple of buddies and I do a minor league road trip every summer. Mm, cool. Um this year we'll go to Wisconsin, um, land of Scott Walker. Man, but New Glarus Brewery, so you gotta balance gotta these things Glarus. out. Yeah. Oh, it's great stuff. Yeah. I'll, I'll bring you back a six. We'll talk. Yeah, please do. Yeah, <laughs> can't get it outside of Wisconsin. No, my, right. my wife and I once camped across the street from there, and when you look at it on Google Maps, it's like, oh, the campground is right across the street, but the the brewery itself is like a mile up a winding yeah. hill. And it was like a hundred degrees and beating sun, and we were just and there's no way to get across. We had to like climb over a ditch and then get there, and it was just awful. But then we had a bunch of beer, and we were able to just stumble <laughs> roll right down. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Yeah, I go there. Uh, my other brother lives in Iowa, and I go out there for Thanksgiving, and I just sort of go out of my way to hit New Glarus on the way to yeah, Iowa. Yeah, that is quite out of your way. I would That's say. an hour out of the way. All right. So he's taking taking twenty northeast yeah, Iowa. He's in Waterloo. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. So uh, why minor league baseball? Um, minor league base. I'm a, I also do baseball scholarship. I teach a class on it. Good I wrote, Lord, for, wrote for yeah. Everything I liked as a kid, I get to be serious about. I'm teaching a baseball literature class right now. At what are you teaching that? Well, we'll, we'll lots put of, a pin in what we're talking of, about. Lots now of lots of random, um, you know, Casey at the bat. Hmm. Um, but again, look at things that you think you know and discover something else. Like so, the everyone knows. Take me out to the ball game. Hmm. No, they don't. They know the chorus. The main part of the song is. Um, about an immigrant girl, Irish girl becoming an American. Really? Katie Casey was baseball mad, had the fever, and had it bad. Just to see the hometown crew every Sioux, Katie Blue. Her beau asked her if she wanted to go to a show, and she said, no, but I'll tell you what you can do. You can take me out to the ball game. 
Wow. Um, and then the second chorus, I don't know, or second verse, I don't have uh, quite as down, but she's basically like she knew every knew the players by their first name, which has some gender meaning in 1908 when that song was written, right? And what's she doing at the game in the daytime? Does she have a night job? Is she, mm. Mm, yeah. Um, you know, she'd yell at the umpires when they got the call wrong. And then when she, then she would lead everyone else in their song, take me out to the ballgame. Hmm. So, you know, it's a song about immigration, about American identity. Um, I teach Ring Lardner's great book, You Know Me, Al, which is maybe the first serious baseball novel. Um, different versions of different texts, the natural yeah. The movie and the novel could not be more different. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I imagine my surprise when yeah. I got to the end of the novel and I was like, did I miss something? And I went back and reread the last no, 10 he, pages. No, he wept many bitter tears. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Field of Dreams and Shoeless Joe, which are, uh, again, the the novel that Shoeless Joe is a novel Field of Dreams is based on, and it's very different. There's no father-son thing to recover. There's mm-hmm. an estranged brother. It's mm-hmm. it's And it's all about Iowa being bought up by multinational agribusiness. Mm-hmm. Um, Bull Durham, uh, a, a great graphic novel called The Golem's Mighty Swing about a 1920s barnstorming Jewish team. Hmm. Again, totally about American identity. If you're a team that plays all its game on the road, you never get the last at bats. Hmm. Right? And so this the sort of myth of the wandering Jew translated into baseball uh, in 1920s. <clears throat> yeah, it's a great it's a great book. And League of Their Own, everything culminates with that. Sure. You know. Sure. Because baseball the one of the big themes in baseball literature is the idea of sort of redemption like there's a religious sacra, sacramental aspect to it in the way people talk about it. i think it's bullshit it's a game it's you play the <laughs> game and you're good at it or you're not you watch it you like it or you don't um but league of their own is this assertion of like a transcendent identity you don't it doesn't matter what your race gender ethnicity is all that matters is baseball if you are if you bind to that you can have an identity that gets rid of all these divisions Gotcha. There's a, there's a, and it's a the song the le- the official league song called the victory song, and I don't have it memorized, but it's like you know we've got Canadians, Irishmen, and Swedes. We're a one for all. We're all for one. We're all American. Yeah. Go watch the movie. Yeah. 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 Now the name the name of the the name of the team the, name of the league is the All American Girls Professional right. Baseball League. Right. But we're all for one. We're one for all. We're all American. That's not how America is right now. Yeah. Right. We're very divided. So anything that asserts some kind of transcendent or uh, positive identity, I think, is important. Hmm. Okay, so, so that that's was a, that's a baseball yes. class. <laughs> what was so the question was before that? It was why minor league baseball. Um, it's it's cheap. It's fun. There's usually um, it's you, you know you're watching guys who are are playing hard because they want to advance. Uh, once in a blue moon, you see a guy, and five years later, you say, "Oh, I saw Matt Caesar down. I saw him when he was playing for the Lansing Lugnuts." Yeah. Um, but mostly, it's just it's an excuse to go on a road trip. You you find what is the local you know, barbecue place that everybody raves about. What's the local bar? You know, get to your hotel, dump all your shit, uh, go to the ball game, go out after, get up in the morning and drive somewhere else. Yeah. So it's a good chance to see the, you know, the American landscape. And sometimes you can make it more of a chore. Like one year we did um, Burlington, Iowa, which is uh, the Bees. They're in the Midwest, the A-League, and they're the smallest city in America with a minor league team. Mm. And then we did Indianapolis the next day. And that's the biggest city in America with a minor league team. Mm. Right on. So yeah, just it's it's a it's a, an excuse to hang out with your buddies and yeah. listen to music in the car and you how, know. how the hell do you have time to do all this <laughs> stuff? I mean, really, you're, you've got so many interests. You're 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 writing on so many things. You're teaching. You're, yeah. you're doing everything. How do you? I mean, what do you? What's your secret? Well, here? my do secret is clearly don't ever do a podcast because that's another hour out of your life. No, yeah, no <laughs> shit. And then I got to edit it and and, uh, and publish uh, it and get it on the run. Um, <laughs> no, it's just a matter of uh, discipline and time. Like mm-hmm. you know. 
today I had some meetings in the morning uh, regarding the advising job. I worked on my Newbery class for tomorrow night. The saloon class starts tomorrow. I've tonight I've got to read what I'm teaching tomorrow morning. You know, just you sort of do it. Yeah. And you build in the time. And uh, you know, let's let's be honest. Academia, I have more time off than most people. Sure. Right. Right. Yeah. Now you said that you have a saloon class. Sorry. Yeah, at the Newbury Library. Uh, this, this class is called After Capone, Post-Prohibition, Chicago Saloon Culture. Um, I've been developing it for several years. It's where I got the uh, first encountered George Aid's book and later convinced the University of Chicago Press that it, there was a market for it because I taught you know, sort of Xerox chapters from it and my students loved it. Um, so, yeah, it's a course about you know, saloons as an urban space, uh, third place, um, but all about identity. All my courses come back to the same thing, which is American identity. Yeah. Who are Americans? Who says? Who gets to be an American? How do we negotiate this stuff? Why do you think that is? Because it's the fundamental question of this country. I mean, we have no ancient history. We do, we do not all have the same bloodline. We are not all speaking the same language. We all came from somewhere else. Native Americans, obviously, accepted in this uh, formula. Um, and America was a place made out of words, right? Literally, you know, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Um, yet some men get to know other men. So there's a little conflict built in there right from the beginning. Um, and so, you know, the, the project of American literature has always been asserting an American identity against English literature, whether it was first American subject matter like Irving and, you know, Hawthorne and Cooper and those guys, but they still wrote like Brits, Badly in Cooper's case, um, or shots fired. Yeah, exactly. James Fenimore Cooper. Oh no! My goodness. The the funniest piece of literary scholarship ever written is an essay by Mark Twain called Fenimore Cooper's Literary Offenses. Mm. I recommend it very highly. Um, and then Twain writes in Benjamin Falconbury Finn, which opens the door to the American vernacular literary uh, possibility mm. that everybody since has been working off of in one way or another. But the question there is still who's who's an American? Who's a human? Right. Yeah. Um, so that's those, all my classes come back to that same question. Just a question of different focusing lenses. So I'm going to, I'm going to push you on this a little bit. Why mm-hmm. do you think that is for you specifically? Why do you, why did your classes come down to that? What, what fascinates you about that? What fascinates me about it is maybe it's about where I come from, right? I'm from a neighborhood that's always been kind of diverse and is more diverse now than it was when I was a kid. I've always been surrounded by people who aren't like me and I dig it but there are people who don't and it's like why what's the problem with your neighbor speaking spanish who cares their tacos are good (laughs) right and you know they didn't like the irish when you came over in the 1850s so what the hell um and so i guess i just think on a personal level i've always found diversity and difference interesting and pleasurable rather than threatening yet we live in a political culture and not just now i mean going back to reagan where there's this divisiveness and this um, us against them discourse that I find personally offensive and I want to work against and I work against it. You know, anyone can retweet anyone they want about that stuff. But in my classroom, I work to try to get my students to understand that difference is real, but it isn't divisiveness necessarily. Right. Do you emphasize maybe the best example um, from my teaching would be Stuart Dybeck's great short story, Blight which is in his collection, the coast, the coast of Chicago. And there's a, it's about four guys growing up in this neighborhood that's, you know, being half plowed under for expressways and stuff in the late fifties. And they have a, they like to go to a viaduct and, um, they call them blues shout contest. They would like make music and yell and scream and imitate the blues singers that they admired, even though they were white kids. 
And in one scene, at the other end of the viaduct, these gang of black kids shows up and sort of harmonizes like the coasters, he says. And they shut up and listen to him. Um, there isn't a big kumbaya moment where they like meet in the middle and, you know, forswear racism and are going to help each other. But they listen to each other. And the viaduct is a great symbol of the divisions that are built into the urban landscape, right? And it's, he says, you know, the slums are on the other side of the viaduct. Right. The viaduct was the new boundary after the riots the summer before. I'm, I'm paraphrasing bits of the story. And, but at the same time, they listened to the guy on the other side of the viaduct. So the viaduct is this railroad embankment that divides the city. And has, they are on one side and we are on the other. But the viaduct itself is the connection built into the division. And what connects you? Art. In this case, music. But it could be anything. Art, literature, music, food, I would argue are things that connect people through divisions of identity and emphasizing the things we have in common versus the things that divide us is the most important thing we can do because again, difference is real, but it doesn't have to be divisive. Right. And I say, you know, as a cisgender straight white guy who's relatively economically advantaged, right. I mean, all these dominant subject positions where I should be able to just go, Oh, life is good. (laughs) Um, But I choose not to, I choose to, I choose to remember that, my people came here and were despised, the Irish and the Germans both, you know, that I've got a brother who was, you know, 30 years ago could have been jailed for his sexual orientation. You know, I've, you know you got, and you got to remember that there's other people who aren't like you and don't have the advantages you have. And how do you, yet we're all Americans. We're all here in this place. How do we get along? How do we move forward as a culture? And so that's my big idea, I guess. Yeah. Right on. Now, uh, First of all, thank you again for oh, you're very welcome. This has been this has been a blast. Uh, is, how do you how are you feeling? You feel yeah, like I feel good. Touch on anything else? No, I mean, right. I'm here to answer your questions. Right. On. Well, the you last know. question that I've got is: uh, we've talked a lot about mm-hmm. Chicago literature. Mm-hmm. Do you have any specific um, authors or works of art that you would recommend people go out absolutely and, and read? I used to have a five book list that if you if anyone moved to Chicago I, and they wanted to know, I would give them these five books. Now it's six. Um, because of something that was just published. So first would be, in roughly chronologically, uh, Carl Sandburg's Chicago Poems from 1916. Is that where the city of Big Shoulders came yes. from? Okay. Chicago. They tell me you are crooked, and I believe them. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. It's a, it's a font of cliche, but it's also still got a lot of truth in it. Um, but the whole book, not just that one poem. Mm. Uh, then Gwendolyn Brooks, 1945 collection of Street in Brownsville. Um, Nelson Algren, Chicago City on the Make. I recommend the edition edited by me and Dave Schmidkins <laughs> that has annotations. Um, and that's from 1951. Um, 1971 is Mike Greco's biography of Richard J. Daly, boss, absolutely essential. Um, 1992 is Stuart Dybeck's The Coast of Chicago that I just cited with the story Blight. And just published last year, Kevin Koval's new collection, um, A People's History of Chicago, mm. which is 77 poems. Um, exploring Chicago history, one for each community area, which is kind of an arbitrary, hmm. you know, device. Um, but it's just an astonishingly great, great book. I'm going to add it to my Chicago writers class next time I teach it. Right on. Yep. Cool. Well, so read, you. read those, read those six books and you'll know a lot about Chicago. And to anyone listening, who's not from around here, don't let anybody give you any shit about not really being a Chicago. <laughs> you get to choose to be a Chicagoan by wanting to be here by having Chicago flag shit all over your apartment, yep. right? Yep, that's, yep, guilty, guilty. Yeah, no, if you, and I, I shouldn't have said shit, stuff, Chicago flag <laughs> stuff. Um, but yeah, that, that embrace of the place, that willful desire to be a part of a community, which includes negative and positive things, right, 
is a decision people get to make for themselves. No one gets to say you aren't really from Chicago because you weren't born here. If you're here and you want to be part of it, you're part of it. Right on. Cool. I feel like that also, uh, there's some bit of America in there as yeah. well. Chicago, Chicago has a synecdoche or metonymy. I can never keep those two straight. For America, absolutely. Mm. And you know, some, some of the great Chicago writers explicitly will say that. They say, when I talk about Chicago, I mean America. Mm. Um, and lots of, Chicago, lots of Chicago historians have argued that like Chicago, what makes Chicago so American isn't that it's different than all these other places but that it had what all these other places had just in bigger numbers or in more intensity. Mm. So she, obviously an immigrant city, well, every industrial city was an immigrant city, but we were the biggest immigrant city, mm-hmm. right? Political corruption, corruption everywhere, but we've got some <laughs> corruption. Um, and, you know, also, you know, innovation, people have innovated all over, but you look at, there's like eight or 10 things that happen in Chicago that changed the world. Um, so that embracing that is like a form of embracing America. Absolutely. Yeah. Right on. Well, cool. thank you very much. My pleasure. Absolutely. Yeah. Really nice. Great time. Thank you. Great to be here.